You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. All right, you ready? Question for you. Who are the two most important people in the history of the world? First one, Jesus. All right, you don't even have to go to church to know that one. That one's a slam dunk, right? Well, according to the Bible, who is the second most important person in the history of the world? It's a guy named Adam. And in just a moment, you'll understand why. But let me say this. One of the greatest myths, especially in the West, is that we see ourselves almost exclusively as an isolated individual. Okay, maybe at most we see ourselves as part of a family. But we tend to see ourselves almost exclusively in individualistic terms. And and what that leads us to, to say is that our identity then is based around these questions. Am I young? Am I old? Am I black, white, rich, poor, Republican, Democrat? Am I good-looking? Am I a winner or a loser? Am I married or single? Now, some of those things may explain us, but they don't define us. In reality, there are two categories of human beings. Those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. That's how God sees all of history. So the next big question for us personally and practically are you in Adam or are you in Christ? This is so critically important because literally your identity and your eternity hang in the balance for whether you're in Adam or you're in Christ. We are born in Adam as sinners. But then you are born anew in Christ, who is our Savior. So incredibly important. So here's how God sees human history. Two leaders, two heads, two captains. And we're going to spend the next several weeks going through much of the book of Ephesians. And you're going to see this particular word, head, come up quite often. And it literally refers to as leader. And why that's important is because who your leader is implicates, affects your every decision and action. Truth be told, none of us are individuals who are isolated and stand alone. We are in one of two groups, one of two families, one of two teams. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. Here's how the Apostle Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 15. For since death came through a man, that's Adam, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man, that's Jesus. For as in Adam, okay, there's one category, one team. So as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. We are born in Adam. We all inherit from him our our sin nature. We all inherit from him separation from God. What we need then is to be born again. We are physically alive but spiritually dead. 
We need to be made spiritually alive to God, and that happens as we are born anew in Christ. That's the foundation, the framework for our identity. Yeah, the Bible speaks of our identity as being in Adam or in Christ, so much so that the Bible speaks of believers being in Christ almost 200 times. Even the Apostle Paul, who wrote 13 letters in the New Testament, speaks of being in Christ, in Him, in the Beloved, 164 times. If somebody says something 164 times, number one, it's important. Number two, they're afraid you're going to forget it. You know how many times the New Testament refers to Christians as Christians and uses that exact term? Three times. None by the Apostle Paul. The Bible says that your identity is as a Christian three times, but that your identity is in Christ 200 times. That's the primary way of understanding what it means to be a believer. Here's the difference between being in Adam and being in Christ. And first, let me say this. Being in Christ doesn't mean that you won't sin. It just means that at the cross of Jesus Christ, he traded places with you. He literally traded places with me. All of the death, all of the shame, all of the condemnation that I deserve went to him. And all of the grace, all of the love, all of the forgiveness that Jesus rightly has as the Son of God comes to me. And what that does is that changes our identity. It means that you are loved as Christ is loved. You are blessed as Christ is blessed. You are adored and honored as Christ is adored and honored. I need you to see this so that you will begin to live your life in the identity of one who is in Christ. And when you can do that, you realize that it's not about religion. It's not about performing before God. And it frees you. It frees you from the shame and the condemnation because all of that's been taken care of by Christ as you are in Christ. So we're born in Adam. That's our original fallen identity. We are born anew in Christ. That is our renewed, resurrected identity given to us in Christ. So what does it mean to be in Christ? Well, this understanding, this concept is revolutionary. Before the Apostle Paul starts writing, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, 164 times, this language was not used. And except rarely, it's not even used outside of Paul's writings. Paul was trying, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to help you and me and all of God's children to understand our identity, who we are. Not who we think we are, not what other people say we are, what God says you are. And he came up with this brand new language and new concept because when Jesus rose from the dead, all things became new. 
And language was straining to understand and articulate the changes that happened because of the resurrection. And so Paul coins this phrase, in Christ, and he's echoing the very words of the Lord Jesus himself. Let me read to you from John 15. What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, here's what Christ says. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Now, the branch needs the vine. The branch cannot survive without the vine. There is no nourishment, there is no life apart from the vine. You and I need to know this. We are branches, not the vine. You're not the strong one that's going to nurture anyone. You're not the essential one that others are going to derive their life from. You're also not independent unto yourself where you can maintain and sustain your own spiritual life. You and I, we're branches. He's the vine. He says, I'm the vine, you are the branches, if you remain in me. Now, this is the language of relationship and affection. First of all, you need to understand, Jesus is a person, not a concept. He's alive. He's not dead. He speaks to you through Scripture. He hears from you through prayer. And he wants a relationship with you, a loving, personal friendship. And if you continue in that friendship and grow in that friendship and nurture that friendship... He says, if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Some of you say, well, I can do a lot of things. But in the sight of God, it's nothing. The only way to live life rightly and, and have eternity credited to you is if you are in Christ and Christ is in you, and, and your life is an overflow. You see, our life is the outpouring of Jesus' life in us and through us. I want you to see this, because this is the beginning of your identity in Christ. And then it's also the beginning of your activity. So out of your identity flows your activity. Now, for those of you who were raised under religion or guilt or manipulation or condemnation or shame, you will wrongly think, I need to live my life in such a way that I'm fruitful and holy and mature and moral and I'm growing so that then Jesus will want to have something to do with me. That's the exact opposite of the way it works. Jesus wants to come into your life. He wants his life to flow through you so that he will begin to bring a change to you. And then you have a new way of thinking, a new way of acting, a new way of living. But it's not you. It's Jesus in you. It's Christ through you. It's Jesus' life changing you. Jesus takes up residence in your life. That produces more fruit 
far more productive life than you can imagine. It means you can do things by the power of God that you cannot do on your own, and he still gets the glory. So let's take it a step further. What we're beginning today is a series in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So what does it mean to be in Christ in his letter to the Ephesians? First, let me say a little bit about the Ephesian church. It's a church that was started and planted, founded by the Apostle Paul. He spent about two years there teaching, ministering, serving. So these are people he knows and loves. And sometimes Paul writes his letters, and perhaps this one, from prison. Now, can you imagine if Paul's identity is tied to his freedom? Or his identity is tied to his performance or his public public reputation, he'd be destroyed. Paul is imprisoned, hated, oppressed, despised, and he's talking about our identity not in our idolatry, but our identity in Christ. And as he writes to the Ephesians, you got to believe that what he says first is important as well as sets the stage for what he's going to continue to write And in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14 in the Greek, which was the original language of all of the New Testament, verses 3 to 14 are all one sentence in the Greek. Twelve verses, one sentence. All you English teachers are going to freak out. This is one seriously Holy Spirit-inspired, poorly punctuated sentence of Scripture. He's going to tell us nine things right from the start, right from the beginning of what it means to be in Christ. So we're going to look at each one briefly. Now, I need to say this to you. When we were studying Paul's letter to the Philippians over the Christmas season, we found out that at the very halfway point, halfway into his sermon, into his letter, he said, finally, well, Here we are. You thought I was about done with the sermon. I'm about to say finally, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 1. Here's how he starts. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, number one. In Christ, you can be faithful. Have you ever struggled with spiritual faithfulness? Is it just me? Have you ever backslid? Have you ever wandered away from God? Any of you been inconsistent? Any of you put sin on the side, meaning you hope no one ever finds out about it? Have you asked yourself, how can I be more disciplined? How can I be more faithful? The answer, in Christ. You can only be faithful in Christ. When you remember who you are, then you'll know what to do. That's what I meant earlier when I said that your identity informs your activity. When you know who you are, you're then able to act on it. You'll know what to do. When you know who Christ is for you and in you, 
and through you. That affects the decisions you make, the life you live. In Christ, you can be faithful because Christ is faithful. He never rebelled. He never strayed. He never sinned. He never repented. One of the things that you and I have to constantly and, and, and regularly, frequently, continually do is the thing he never had to do, and that's repent. Because he's without sin. He's perfect. Christ alone is faithful, and he's faithful to us. And even when we're faithless, the Bible says that he is still faithful. Second thing it says is that in Christ, you are blessed. He writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Have you ever felt not blessed? Ever felt your life is not what it should be? You're working hard and, and you don't get the promotion. Or maybe you're working hard, you don't even get to keep the job. Or you're investing in people and all it seems is that they're just taking from you. In Christ, you are blessed. I'm not saying that financial, emotional, physical healing will start tomorrow. It may, but more to the point, you've been blessed with the righteousness of Christ. You've been blessed with the love of Christ. You've been blessed with the forgiveness of Christ. You've been blessed with a resurrection still to come, an eternal life that awaits us. Now, the truth is we're only able to see a portion of that blessing in this life, that the rest is waiting for us in the life to come. So it's not that God is withholding his blessing from us. He's storing it up for us to enjoy into eternity. In Christ, you are blessed. Number three, in Christ, you are chosen. He goes on and says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, in love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. He, that is God, chose us. Paul goes on to say he predestined us. Now, there's some Calvinistic, Reformed, Presbyterian predestination language. Some of you like it, some of you don't. But it's not just a Presbyterian thing. It's an every believer thing. There it is right in the Bible. I didn't write this, I'm just delivering the mail. Some of you say, well, I don't believe in predestination. Well, you have to if you believe the Bible. The issue is, what do you believe about predestination? Here's what it means. Paul says, he chose us. Now, how did he choose us? In him, that is in Jesus, before the creation of the world. Let me ask you a question. Has anyone ever chosen you? Were you the kid in school when it got down to it, it was between you and a potted plant and somebody said, I'll take the potted plant. 
You're like, dang it, I never get chosen. Uh, do you feel that way? Do you feel like, yeah, I never get picked for anything? You're not chosen, you're not favored, you're not graced in that way. In Christ, you're chosen. We'll see more of this to come. But what we're not to do as Christians is to debate this or ask the wrong questions about it. It's something for Christians to delight in. Let's say that there's an orphanage filled with just a ton of of great kids. And a dad walks in and and says, I want to love that one. What should the response be? From that kid, it's rejoicing. It's yay. It shouldn't be that they begin to ask questions. Well, why was I chosen? Why, why were others not chosen? Could the Father not have chosen all of us? What does it say about the character of this Father? Is He not all loving? Instead, it's, hey, I got a dad. And he loves me. I'm not better than all the other kids. In fact, I think there's a lot of times I'm worse. The good news is he didn't pick me because I'm the prettiest or the smartest or the best behaved. He just chose me. Friends, this is what the salvation through grace is all about. You're chosen in Christ Again, there are two teams, two categories, in Adam or in Christ. If God chooses to save you and love you and adopt you, you are chosen in Christ. Not only that, but to be holy and blameless. Number four, in Christ, you are forgiven. He goes on to say, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. Have you ever felt punished? Ever felt, man, life right now is hard, I guess because God is punishing me. Let me say, in Christ, you're forgiven, not punished. You see, Jesus died in your place for your sins. And when he said, it is finished, that's what he meant. And he traded places with you. You're in the place of forgiven. He's in the place of condemned. That's what happened on the cross. Because Jesus was punished in your place for your sins, God never punishes those who are in Christ because he's already punished Christ. So the wrath of God gets poured out on the Son of God, not the children of God. Now it is true that we reap what we sow. Sometimes we do things that are wrong, and there are consequences that go along with that, and that's God's way of helping us learn and and grow. It's sometimes like a parent saying to a kid, don't do that. The parent allows the kid to make the choice and The kid does it and comes back and says, man, I shouldn't have done that. That's where the Bible says, and it's both in Proverbs and in Hebrews, the father disciplines those 
children that he loves. It's always about love. It's always for our good, not our destruction. It's always that we might grow, not that we be discouraged. You're forgiven. Not just a little bit forgiven. You are totally forgiven. God doesn't keep a record against you. It's erased in Christ. That's because your identity is in your Savior. Number five, in Christ you can know the will of God. He says this, With all wisdom and understanding, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ. Here's my next question. Have you ever been confused about what the will of God is? He says, in Christ, you have meaning and purpose in your life. God, do you want me to work here or do you want me to work there? Maybe the answer is, I want you to work where Christ is glorified in whatever your work. God, am I, am I going to be sick? Am I going to be healthy, rich, poor, married? Sometimes those are the wrong questions. The question should be, how can I live in this moment in Christ? My purpose may not be rich. It may not be healthy or married. But God's purpose, God's will for me is whatever circumstance I find myself in to live in that moment in Christ. If I'm poor, to live in Christ through poverty. If I'm rich, then to live in Christ with generosity. If single, it's to live as Christ did, as a chaste, godly worshiper in singleness. If married, then to live in Christ by loving and serving my spouse. We all have the same purpose. He says it. The purpose is set forth in Christ. Those other things may explain us, but they don't define us. The question should never be, God, what is my single-focused, narrow-road, detailed, step-by-step plan for my life? It should always be right now. What does it mean to live life in Christ? He continues, number six, in Christ you are reconciled. To be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. How many of you felt lonely? For you, people seem far away and God even further away. Maybe sin is a separation wall. It's separating you from God and it's separating you from others. In Christ, you are reconciled. That means you are reconciled to God in Christ. You are. Believe it. Trust it. Don't doubt it. Don't deny it. Don't disregard it. And when you sin and you feel distant, you're still in Christ. Practically, you may have wandered, but you're still in Christ. So come home to him. Paul continues, number seven, 
In Christ, you have an inheritance. He says, in him, we were also chosen. Now, this is where other translations will say, in him, you have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined, there's that word again, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. We get some of that inheritance here in this life. The rest is awaiting us in the life to come. When the Bible refers to this life, it uses the phrase a lot of times, a short while. Now, I know that when you're in the middle of some stuff, it may feel like a long while. But in Christ, there's resurrection from the dead. In Christ, there's eternal life. In Christ, there is an inheritance awaiting you and me. You are the one that God has graced in this life. And yet, there's still an inheritance to come. It's a physical inheritance where all your sickness will be healed. It's a spiritual inheritance where your reconciliation with God and others is perfected. It's an emotional inheritance where there will be just indescribable joy. It's even a financial inheritance where you will never be hungry, you won't be poor, you'll never be in need. That's the great inheritance in Christ. And knowing who we are and knowing where we're going helps us persevere along the journey. Almost done. Number eight, in Christ you have hope. Paul writes, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Friends, in case you didn't know this, your hope is in Christ. Your hope is not in the government. Your hope isn't going to be in your beauty or your IQ or your degree or your marriage or your children or your success or your family or your friends. Your hope is in Christ. Your hope is alone forever, has to be, must be in Christ. Apart from Christ, there is no hope. If you're hanging your hope on the economy, there is no hope. If you're hanging your hope on morality, there is no hope. If you're hanging your hope on your friends, family, coworkers, neighbors, spouse, kids, intellect, ability, it will fail you. Whatever God should have for you, it cannot be that your hope is in someone or something It has to be that your hope is in Christ so you can endure anything. That's how it is. Lastly, and you were also included in Christ, when you heard the message of truth, so first of all, being included in Christ means this stuff isn't just for them. It wasn't just for people back in the Bible times or modern times, other churches or people sitting in other homes. This is for you. When you heard the message of truth, Paul says, so here's the truth. We're hearing the truth. 
The world is filled with lies about who God is and who you are and, and what your identity is all about and your purpose. This is the word of truth. He says, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, so salvation is tied to believing in him, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The way you know that your identity is in Christ is through the presence, person, and power of the Holy Spirit. So number nine, in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. Through Him, you have new wisdom, new passions, new pleasures. He comes to change you by allowing you to experience the life of Christ you see, it was the Holy Spirit that empowered the life of Jesus Christ. And Jesus' life is not just for us to open up the Bible and observe it. Jesus' life is one that we are to experience. And his life was lived by the power of the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit descended upon him at his baptism. The Holy Spirit filled him throughout his ministry. The Holy Spirit enabled him to rejoice. The Holy Spirit empowered him through trial and temptation, through sadness and suffering. And it was the Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. And I want you to understand that the Holy Spirit is not a force. It's a person. He's not impersonal. He's personal. He's not far away. He's near. He's not against you. He's for you. He's not wanting you to perform. He's wanting to give you new life. He doesn't want you to be in lies and death. He wants you to live a new life in the truth that you are in Christ. And when you are in Christ, you are someone you would not be. You can live a life that you could never have lived. And you can do things that you'd otherwise be incapable of doing. This is only the beginning. As we continue to think about these things and study them and, and pray over them, that we would be open to what Paul has to say to us in this letter. As he teaches us, as it transforms us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to be in you and to never forget it, to always want it, so we would not allow our identity be, to be shaped by our, our idolatry, that we would not have someone or something, including ourselves and what we have done or, or failed to do, be the defining aspect of who we are. It's not about us trying harder, doing better. It's about being in you. So send your Holy Spirit to regenerate our hearts, renew our minds, and redeem our lives through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior.
We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.